Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, I, th- I think most of our listeners probably tuned in to our episode Future Shock. So they are probably familiar with the concept, but even if they are not familiar with the concept of Future Shock, mm-hmm. I think they might feel a little of it once they're through with this episode. Yeah, because the Tofflers in Future Shock talked about this idea of having these sort of neural prosthetics. They didn't call them that, but it's more like brain computer interfaces. Mm-hmm. And this was a wild idea in the 70s, but hey, let's let's get real here. I mean, this thing is happening in 2003, the world's uh, first brain prosthesis was put into an animal. And then uh, just this year, uh, there was an auditory brain implant in a toddler. So we can see that this is becoming more and more common. And I attended a panel at the World Science Festival on this very topic. It's uh, called Cells to Silicon, Your Brain in 2050. 2050 or 2030, by the way, always seems to be like the, the year that all this stuff is going to be here for real. I don't know if you've noticed that. But they talked about the steps that that they're taking right now to make this more of a reality. And we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, yeah. to your point, 2030, 2050, those are the new 2000s, I guess, the years we can look to and say, this is the technology we're going to have. This is the life we're going to have because of these advancements. And to your point, we've seen some pretty impressive steps made thus far. I mean, the... uh, a cyborg rat with the uh, with the brain prosthesis mm-hmm. and a cyborg toddler. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Now, not to not to to get too caught up in the idea of the, of the cyborg because we've we've discussed before technological adaptations on your body inside your body are becoming more and more every day. You know, ranging from a pacemaker to a wristwatch, and so we're just seeing the the natural extrapolation of that idea. Yeah, you're augmenting your natural abilities, right? I wear glasses, so I'm augmenting my vision. Yeah, none of this makes anybody less human. Uh, All it does is either uh, makes up for injuries or or some sort of uh, shortcomings in one's uh, biology, or it is uh, is gaming the system a bit, or maybe gaming the system a lot, depending on what the uh, augmentation is. Well, and you would need this sort of gaming of the system quite a bit if you were someone like a, say, stroke patient who had lost the ability to move your limbs. And uh, neuroscientist John Donahue was actually talking about this on the panel. Uh, Specifically, he referenced a stroke patient named Kathy, and he showed this film of her. Mm -hmm. Uh, She sustained permanent damage to her brain, and as a result, the axons that run along her spine and deliver information from her motor cortex to her limbs were incapacitated. And so she was relegated to a life in a wheelchair with others helping her to move and to feed her. And um, then she signed on to this five-year experiment with Donahue and others, other researchers. And there was an implant inserted into her brain that interacted with robotic arms that would do some things for her, like like get the coffee, like actually bring coffee to her lips, which she hadn't done for years. Yeah, the, and the video footage uh, of this is pretty remarkable because, yeah, she has not, in, in over a decade, she has not raised a cup of coffee to her own lips of her own volition, and now she's doing it. She's thinking the robot arm into action. It's uh, There's nothing, you know, she's not moving anything with her tongue. It's nothing with her muscles. Mm-hmm. It's all inside her mind. She's thinking about the movement, and it is happening. 
and it's amazing. It's the, it's, it's the stuff that you would often think, even today, you tend to think of as science fiction. The idea that I'm commanding mm-hmm. a machine with my mind. I'm moving something other than my physical body with my mind. And yet here it is. Yeah, it is amazing. And so like, how do you get your thoughts externally out there to do something for you? Well, it turns out that what you do is you insert a wire into the R-motor cortex. And what this wire is doing, it's just, it's not a very big wire. So it's not like she's got things, you know, sticking out of her head. Mm-hmm. But what it's doing is it's, Fishing for neural spikes. Now, what are neural spikes? Okay. Every time neurons fire in the brain, they're shuttling ions back and forth, and there's an electrical potential change there. So if you have a wire inserted into the brain, that can detect that electrical change. And when it does, uh, you know, changes in ions when neurons stir about and meet, uh, it will actually transmit information out to a computer to say, ah, I detect neural activity here right now. And it's measuring that. So we've talked about this before with the Jennifer Aniston neurons. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we called them. That when someone is thinking about Jennifer Aniston, uh, some people, I I should say, not everybody, uh, you will see a spike in neuronal activity because there's a whole database of information and memory there related to Jennifer Aniston. And so the signal is really very strong. Well, the same thing happens when you're thinking and you're concentrating, like, I would like to move my arm right now, and I'm trying to think about moving my arm. All of those neurons would sort of uh, coalesce together to give off a strong signal, and that's what that wire could detect. Yeah, identifying what that signal looks like and then feeding it out to this machine. I, I, I often, in, in looking at this topic, I, I keep thinking of it in terms of a road, uh, like a mountain road. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the early examples we talked about, that uh, the, the rat uh, uh, prosthesis that had to do with the uh, damaged uh, hippocampus or the uh, the toddler um, prosthesis, uh, which specifically was an auditory brainstem implant. Mm-hmm. These are cases where you have point A, point B, and point C, all right? Yeah, you know, you have a road, imagine a road across the mountains from your house to the store. But then that middle point is, uh, is a part of the road that's washed away by, uh, by a flood. So what do you do? You, you, how do you get from A to, to C? Well, you put a bridge over it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of this technology is. Figuring out how to fill in that, that gap, how to bridge that gap from, from one, from a healthy part of the brain to another healthy part of, for, well, let's just say a healthy part of the chain mm-hmm. of, of, of action and reaction to, to bridge that gap in a, in a way that lets you function again. And then in this, we see, uh, we see a situation where we're not only bridging the gap, we're building the bridge out of the organism itself mm-hmm. into an external, uh, system, an external robotic system. You're right, because in this case, point A is the neuronal activity. Mm -hmm. Point B would normally be those axons in her spine. But because they can't send those signals to the body, what we're doing here, or what researchers are doing, is they're taking those signals out externally, out of the organism, as you say, into the computer to decode that neuronal activity. And then point C would be the robotic arms instead of her own arms. And what is so amazing, so fascinating about this is that what they're doing is that they're taking the, the sounds that that these neuronal spikes made mm-hmm. and they're decoding them. So you might have like five blips that's, that really mean move the arm to the right. You might have seven blips that are decoded as move the arm to the left. And that is then being put into the robotic arm as a command. So 
the fact that they can even take the information out and decode it in a way that makes sense uh, and then obviously matches up to what Kathy is thinking because she can corroborate that, right? Yeah, you really get the sense. It's almost like listening to a conversation through a wall and they're yeah. making sense of it uh, through uh, in sort of indirect ways. But they're getting enough information out of it. They're getting they're they're getting enough of the the, the points. They're get, they're high, highlighting those neural spikes and then figuring out what it's uh, it's asking for and then reproducing it. Now the crazy thing about this is that they are getting this neuronal activity from just a sampling of the neurons. So maybe about fifty neurons out of the billions of neurons in your brain, uh, or the billions of synapses. So that's. I mean, that's tiny. Mm-hmm. That tiny bit of neural activity can be picked up and then acted upon. I believe in the uh, in, the, in the, the talk you attended at World Science Festival, Robert Krulwich, uh, uh compared it to uh, to, to voting, uh, where you yeah. have like a small yeah. portion of the population that's voting, and the rest are not voting. But you're you're figuring out what the public wants as a whole based on this small sample, and that's kind of what's happening here with uh, with this situation. Yeah, definitely check this out. Uh, you can go to World Science Festival to their website and just look for Cells to Silicon, and, and you can see this talk. It's really great. Um, so there are drawbacks to this. Of course, there's the idea that it may not be something that you could have in your brain long term. Kathy's had it for five years. She hasn't had any problems, but we know that the body doesn't like foreign objects in it. That's true. Also, it's worth noting that the robotic reach and grasp actions are not going to be as fast as a- or as accurate as those of an able-bodied person. I think that's that's that should be pretty obvious. We're not at the point in the technology where it's going to be a one for one, but uh, but it's it's a step in the, that direction. Yeah, and uh, Donahue says that uh, the neural spikes are not always the same from trial to trial. In other words, those five blips might be six blips the next time or seven, and so they have to figure out the pattern hmm. each time. And he said that it's very likely that those neural spikes are influenced by other conditions at the time. So it could be hunger, it could be a particular emotional state or a physical state, um, which is all... Really fascinating because we talked about proprioception before and we talked about it in, in people who have l- lost the ability to move their limbs and um, and how all of this influences the body, the physical state of the body. So um, obviously it's not something that is perfect right now, but is the beginnings of something that could be really important in a kind of neural pixie dust of the future, and we'll get to that later. Now, another fascinating example of this technology can be found in the work of Sheila Nuremberg, um, who is a neuroscientist working on technology for a prosthetic eye. Yeah, because she says that more than 10 million people in the U.S. are blind or facing blindness because of diseases like macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the vast majority of them, it's the prosthetic devices that are available right now that are their best hope. But the ones that, that... are common right now are not necessarily the best. And she has created a, uh, a neural prosthetic device that is amazing. Yeah. Now, think back again to that analogy I made about the road. Mm-hmm. Point A, point B, and point C. And point B, that middle point, is washed out by a flood. How do you get across it? How do you build that bridge? So when, when you're looking at something, just with normal vision, normal healthy vision, you have the image that's going to your eye. It's hitting your retina. And then the middleman, that point B, that is the, the retinal circuitry. And this essentially extracts information from it and converts it into a code. And these are electrical pulses that are sent to the brain. So to your point, what do you do when the photoreceptors die? What do you do when one link in the chain vanishes? 
Yeah, because that's what happens with macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. Those photoreceptors on the retina die off, and then over time, all the other cells in the circuits that are connected to them die off too, rendering you effectively blind. So the only thing that you're left with are those output cells, and those are the ones that send the signals to the brain. But because of all that degeneration, they're not sending any signals anymore. And if you have a regular prosthetic for eyesight, um, you could allow a person to see bright lights or high contrast edges, but these are shadowy with like really no real detail. And what you're using in this regular prosthetic for eyesight is an encoder that takes in light, but the firing pattern is all over the place. So what you need then is a device that can mimic the actions of that of the front end circuitry of sight, send signals to the retina's output cells. And, uh, and, and in this, you're, you're, you end up mimicking the actions of that front-end circuitry. So you're taking the image, converting them into the retina's own code. Yeah, what Nuremberg has created is um, this prosthetic device that has two parts, uh, an encoder and a transducer. Now, the encoder mimics the actions of, you say, that front-end circuitry. And then the transducer makes the output cells send the code to the brain, and the result is this uh, retinal prosthetic that can produce normal retinal output. And what we're talking about is is a set of equations that they can implement on a chip. And so she's saying, hey, it's just math here. And that's the exciting part, is that if you take these two components of the prosthetic device, then you can mimic real eyesight in a person who is blind. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty phenomenal. We're talking about, uh, the, the individual would wear a sort of camera that has an encoder of a device that's taking that information from the camera and translating it into the retinas code, translating it into a version that the brain can make sense of. Uh, you're talking about a real direct, uh, link between mechanical, artificial sensory and organic uh, reasoning of that sense information. Now, to get a sense of this, you should definitely check out the the talk because she shows two different examples of how this works with a regular prosthetic device and with this new one. Mm -hmm. And what she shows is sort of a readout of the neural firing activity in regular eyesight, um, the regular prosthetic, and the new one. And you will see that in the new prosthetic and regular eyesight, those patterns are almost identical. It's not perfect, but that middle part, the regular one right now that just has the encoder that just takes in light is very imperfect. And then she gives a second example of, she said, you know, we wanted to take a snapshot of what people were seeing or what these primates were seeing. Because I believe they're in human uh, trials right now, clinical trials. But what those um, images that were seen, you see the, the regular eyesight, you see a baby's face. It's perfectly rendered, of course, right? Because mm-hmm. you have perfect eyesight. Then you have the regular prosthetic, and it's very shadowy. You can't even make out the pattern, which is amazing, because you know, you and I have discussed before how humans are pattern recognition machines, and yet there's not enough data points here to really make a clear picture. And then you have this new device that she came up with, and it is plain as day that that is the baby's face. It is not exact, but can you imagine... Uh, being someone who has lost their sight and you all of a sudden are hooked up with this neural uh, prosthetic device for your eye and you're able to see something as, I don't know, iconic and recognizable as a tree or a baby's face again. Yeah, I mean, you would have have some level of detail as well as just, uh, you know, an, an abstract idea of your uh, environment. 
mm-hmm. uh, just for navigational purposes. So it's, it's pretty pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, and as you had said, this sort of washout areas, um, you know, from points A to C, this is something that Nuremberg is is imagining for the rest of the brain. So not just eyesight, but for stroke victims. So in the cortex of trying to create this sort of communication center using the same sort of device. Yeah, figuring any any kind of situation where there's a there, there's a gap, where there's a missing link in the chain or a damaged link in the chain then we could conceivably go in there and build that uh, that bridge, that neural bridge uh, from point A to point C. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the sort of neural dust that we may all have sprinkled into our brains in the year 2050. All right, we're back. Uh, so if you were not future shocked by the, the earlier information about sort of the current state and the, and the, the pending state um, of these, uh, these neural enhancements, then uh, hold on to your britches because we are about to look at where this could go, where this is going, and how it could dramatically change not only our lives but, but, but what it is to be human. Yeah, okay, so think back to Kathy and think about that wire in her brain, which I, I believe is referred to as brain gate. Um, Michael Maharibitz has created a new kind of prosthetic in the form of these cubes as small as neurons. Okay, we're talking about 50 microns across. Okay. Now, the thing is, is that they don't, um, they don't work with electromagnetic frequency because they're too small. So you can't have something like a wire detecting them, but you can use sonogram to detect these. And what they're thinking is that you could have these sprinkled throughout your brain and you would have all these different data points measuring that neuronal activity. And you could have a far more robust system that not only exports the sort of neuronal activity, the sort of thoughts that you're having, but maybe even imports information so when you start to think about this, this neural dust, as it's called, and you start to see how you could have these prosthetics not just external to you, but implanted in you. And you could have this this really very uh, sophisticated system of information coming in and going out of your body, out of your brain. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the ability to, to, to have more of a hands-on, real-time idea of, of what the brain is doing just uh, throughout the course of the day, not just when you're hooked up to some machines mm-hmm. or, or, uh, or you're, you're run through uh, an fMRI. This would be uh, like a, a daily constant understanding of what your brain is doing. Yeah, and I mean, you, you see this, that the fact that you could have more of this neural dust p- spread throughout your brain, again, more data points of collection, more ability to, to import that data. But not only that, you could have this stuff in there maybe for the rest of your life. Because as we discussed before, the brain does not like foreign objects. But if you have something as tiny as a neuron, it's very possible that it could pass in the body as something that's uh, supposed to be there. Okay, so at a, at conceivably then, at even an early age, you are injected your brain is injected with this dust, and this dust is spread mm-hmm. out through the brain, mm-hmm. and it's all uh, reporting and receiving information from the outside. Well, right. So for someone like Kathy, for instance, um, she would get sort of an upgrade here because, again, let's assume that there's some sort of implant here mm-hmm. or a prosthetic device that could easily allow her to, to move her body around. Um, and maybe even she could receive directions 
Um, and that's where this thing gets really weird because you could effectively use this as a brain upgrade. And we talked about this before, and I think it was in Monkeys, that they had their neural pathways tinkered with when they were making decisions. And the idea was you could increase neural activity in one direction so that they made specific um, movements or decisions about what they were about to do, the right decision, right? So uh-huh. what if you had this neural pixie dust and it could bolster your memory? It could create stronger neural pathways to information. I mean, you wouldn't have to study so much, right? <laughs> it's it, it's pretty fascinating because we're talking about not only not only using this technology to bridge gaps and to serve as a bridge where an area was damaged, but just to speed up the connections to improve the the, the overall road to where you have yeah. uh, you know just imagine a, a, again to use the analogy of the mountain mountain roads where you have lots of bridges not because the the uh, the road is is unsafe but because this makes the transportation faster smoother uh and uh, and and altogether more effective right it's a kind of cure-all because not only would it be helpful for say stroke victims or someone with uh you know macular degeneration in this case um but because conceivably it could work in the same way that Nuremberg is using her uh, system. But yeah, it could just give you that sort of lift that everybody has been fantasizing about and thinking about in terms of upgrading your brain in a way that it runs faster and smoother, as you say. Yeah, and you could have like a daily or weekly email that you receive telling you what your, almost like your web traffic for your website, except you would have a readout saying, hey, this is how your brain's doing. This is your, your neural activity for a given day, a given week. Yeah, and here's the thing. Again, this is that we're not just talking about um, output here, uh, it, working with in, implanted prosthetic devices, but we're also talking about input. And while this doesn't work on an electromagnetic frequency, it does work on that that sort of ultrasound. In fact, these the neural pixie dusts are called tuning forks for ultrasound. Uh, the idea is that maybe you could still kind of hack into this system. And that would be a problem, right? You could hack into someone's neural circuitry and have them doing things. Oh, so, so you don't mean just in the sense of life hacking where I'm improving my brain by having the neural pixie dust. You're talking about an outsider hacking into yeah. the device that's, that's, that's attuned with my neural pixie dust and essentially hacking my brain, hacking my, my memory even, hacking mm-hmm. my, uh, my perception of reality or my, my actual consciousness. Yeah. Now, of course, this is, this is all predicated on the idea that we have a much better idea of how the brain works in 20 or 30 years. And we have a kind of techno, technology that's so pervasive that people would have access to these systems. But what if all of that came together? And we all had neural pixie dust spread throughout our brains to help us, right? To help us remember things, to help us do things. And I could say, go and hack the system for you and say, I would really love for Robert to do 10 cartwheels today. And who knows that you could get that sophisticated. Um, but that's a possibility. I mean, that's, that's the wonderful and horrific thing about this kind of technology is you can really go off the deep end. Um, and, and kind of go to the dark side and imagine all of these things. Of course, we know that science uh, has a lot of integrity and that technology so far has been uh, not used really that much for ill will. But Oh, no, I can't think of a single <laughs> single example of, of technology being used to hurt anyone. Um, well, no, 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 yes, you have a point there. But I guess what I'm saying is that I so far have not been able to pick up on the black market yet, 
an exoskeleton that can sort of let me uh, rampage through the streets of Atlanta. That's true. So, you know, maybe this will be a technological advancement that uh, society will be able to uh, to stay abreast of instead of letting it get uh, ahead of, uh, of of society, as we often do with uh, technological advancements. That would be the hope. But here's something I want to say out to, to any kids listening. If you guys are interested in neuroscience um, and you're also interested in engineering or even chemistry or math- mathematics, you might want to consider joining up with the neuroscientists on this because, as they were saying on the panel, they need people who are coming from these different disciplines, even like physics, mm-hmm. to help figure out how some of these technologies work with the brain and how best to do this. It's not just neuroscientists figuring out. They need other disciplines to really make this work. Yeah, otherwise, uh, how are we going to get to the point where you can actually download a copy of your brain and have that stored away, potentially for safekeeping. And we could reach the point where um, I, I instantly think of uh, the book Altered Carbon by um, uh, writer Richard K. Morgan, in which uh, you have individuals who have, be- or certainly individuals who can afford it, uh, the, the, the super rich, uh, for instance, who have uh, copies of their brain backed up. Uh, so that if something happens to their body, they can just have their mind re-sleeved into a new body. Or you want to explore in a, another planet, you just have your a copy of your mind sent, uh, at, you know, at the speed of light to a, to this location where it can be put into a new body or a robotic body to do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, but before all this happens again, they they uh, they need to put the the rubber to the road here and figure out how the brain works. Also, technology they need to upgrade here because you know using fMRI to to look at these neuronal spikes. Is not a perfect science because that neuron, neuronal activity is happening at something like one one thousandth of a second, but the imaging itself is only happening at one second. So it's not a true picture of the brain and what's happening. Right. But through this technology, we'll, we, we will conceivably have a much better idea of what the brain is doing. Yeah, and, and Maharibit said that where we are with the brain is a lot like where we were with cosmology uh, right before the Hubble telescope, right? And and uh, just like the Hubble telescope allowed us to really peer into uh, into space and get an idea of the breadth and depth of it, he's saying there are technologies coming online now that will allow us to do the same thing with the brain, that middle space that we don't know much about. Hmm. Now, you know, you were talking about hacking earlier, the idea of someone hacking into your personal thoughts, uh, into, into the inner workings of your brain. Yeah. Um, I can't help but wonder. So, so right now we're, as we as a civilization, or we as a culture anyway, are obsessed with the the lives of celebrities, mm-hmm. and or not even necessarily celebrities, but sort of the 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 reality stars, just some sort of ordinary person that's thrust in the limelight. And we get uh-huh. to watch everything they're doing. But imagine a future where it would maybe not even be their just their lives, but their actual thoughts we could tap into. Or if someone's a great thinker, perhaps their thoughts would be considered art. Thought art. And for that matter, then is there such thing as hate thought? Could you be prosecuted for hate thought? Well, that's the idea, right? Because all of a sudden you have, would have access to neuronal activity that would point to your subconscious. And we know the subconscious is all, it's down under there making all of these mm-hmm. diabolical decisions for us, things that we aren't really aware of until it reaches the surface of consciousness. So if you were able to peer into your subconscious via this technology, would you become super aware a, a really self-aware person or would you become super paranoid that, you know, someone was uh, able to predict your movements before you could even complete that thought? 
Yeah, what if Google ends up selling your subconscious to advertisers in the future? What if hackers, what if you turn in the news one day, sorry, uh, hackers uh, got into Amazon and they stole everybody's subconscious and their credit cards? But don't worry, we'll monitor your credit card for a full year. <laughs> Dark stuff, my friend. But right. fascinating and, and wonderful in, in the current uh, abilities to actually help people who need that bridge from A to C. Yeah, and I mean, that's the bottom line here, uh, looking at, especially in the, in the near term, uh, ways that this technology can drastically improve the lives of people who, who need to have uh, that, that gap bridge, that need links in their neural chain reforged. Indeed. All right, so there you have it, neural pixie dust. Uh, I'm sure everyone has some thoughts on this particular topic, be it the the near-term uh, uh, health applications that we were talking about or the long-term science fiction-y stuff. Uh, either way, we'd love to hear from you with your insight on this. Um, you can reach us out to us in a number of different ways. Uh, as always, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our blog posts, all of our podcasts, all of our videos, links out to our social media accounts. And, hey, be sure to go to YouTube, where we are Mind Stuff Show. Check out all of our video series, including this fabulous new elevator series. It is wonderful, quirky stuff. Um, as I, as I, I think I was explaining to uh, to somebody recently, uh, our video projects. I feel like we're trying to do different scoops of ice cream for different viewers. So, whereas the the Monster Science series. Mm-hmm. Might be a bit too um, cotton candy and gummy worms for some listeners, uh, some viewers rather. Uh, the the the, ele- the information elevator I feel like is more uh, what's a refined but creative uh, ice cream flavor. Hmm, maybe a uh, lemon thyme Ooh. sorbet. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Or I had this one the other day, an actual ice cream. It was dates and balsamic vinegar. Ah, uh, yeah, but now I feel like you're t- like we're talking about Park Avenue here. Yeah? Yeah. We could be Park Avenue. We can? We can. Some of our stuff is Park Avenue. Monster right. Science not, is not Park Avenue. This but, is sort of like... I feel like elevator, uh, information elevator might be... This is sort of like uh, someone who might hang out in your elevator on Park Avenue. Okay. And they're not really paid to be there, but they hang out there. That's that's perfect. And that's, they stalk that's the you. Analogy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for the call out. Yeah, and guys, if you haven't checked out Monster Science, you got to do it, because it is a wonderful, like, gummy worm packed full of... Ice cream, super normal stimuli shot of science. That's right. So that's what we're trying to do here. All right. Uh, you guys have thoughts. We want to hear them, and you can send them to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Mm-hmm.